Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome into Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, it's a special edition of the podcast this week. It's part two of our salute to the 50th anniversary of MASH, which premiered in September of 1972. Several of the cast members, journalist Mark Freeman, and a number of people who guested on the show have joined us for our special salute. And as we kick off part two, we look at one of the many ways the cast connected, and that was through their love of practical jokes, some of which became legendary, including an elaborate prank pulled by Mike Farrell. I remember one time uh, Alan came to me with a, a, a letter from a guy. It was a con, you know, it was a guy that said... <laughs> He had this idea about building this wall in San Francisco out of bricks, and bricks would be painted with the names of every person who contributed ten thousand dollars to this <laughs> to this uh, fund that he was building for to deal with the homeless and the destitute and blah 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 bullshit bullshit bullshit. Excuse me for using <laughs> that term. Um, and Alan was really frosted. I mean, he was. We all got kooky mail as well as the wonderful, most of the wonderful mail we got. But this particular one really ticked him off. And he, he came over and showed it to me. He said, can you believe this jerk, to, you know, pulling this? And I thought to myself, God, man, he, this guy really got under his skin for whatever reason. So I went over to Scotty, or the guy who answered the phone and took messages. And uh, I said, tomorrow. Uh, tell uh, <laughs> tell Alan that that let's call this guy Tom Jones. Tell Alan that a man by the name of Tom Jones called for him and, <laughs> and wants him to call back. And Scotty said, what, what, "What do you mean?" I just said, "Just tell him that." And he said, "Okay, sure." <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Alan got a call from Tom Jones, and he said, "What, <laughs> Scotty?" I said, I, "All I can tell you is he called," and so. Scotty very quickly got into the got into the gag. So the next, so that day, I said thank you for doing that. Now the next day, uh, tell him he called twice. <laughs> but we got that to the third day. I I had Western Union send a telegram in his name, to Alan. and Alan was getting more and more cooked by this the audacity of this guy. And then to cap it off. At the, I don't know, the end of the week, maybe it was, I hired a friend who was an actor who Alan didn't know to play this guy. And I called the uh, uh, the publicist on the show at the lot, and I said, this man's going to come on the set, on the lot, and I want you to bring him down and introduce him to Alan. He has a charity that he needs that Alan wants to hear about. And, and my friend... Uh, Went and came in, and Chuck said, Chuck Panama, the publicist said, okay, sure, no problem. And my friend came on the lot, and Chuck brought him on the set. Alan, I want you to meet Tom Jones. He's this gentleman. He said, Alan, what you should see. I mean, his face was just ashen. <laughs> and he uh, and, and Chuck then departed. And my friend just gave Alan this pitch about the wonderful thing that would happen if he could just give the money and have his name on the brick in the wall. Alan, 
uh, uh, did not strike him, <laughs> but he <laughs> but he ushered him off the set and came over to me and said, "Can you believe that?" And then I had one of those people you you have come in and sing a song that has uh, <laughs> that has uh, some balloons and uh, uh, sings a song that we that we can concocted about you've been had, my friend. And <laughs> And he, oh God, Alan's mouth was wide open for hours after that. That was hysterical. Those practical jokes became the basis for the memorable episode, The Joker is Wild. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bert Metcalf came up to me and he said, Jesus, he said, these things you pull in the guys. He said, I used to pour salt in the sugar shaker for the coffee when they were having coffee in the mess. Just stuff, you know, just to, to kind of have fun. And Bert said, well, we, "We've got a story here." So they wrote a they wrote, <laughs> they wrote a story about the people doing jokes on everybody. And Joker turned out to be BJ. One of the strengths of Mash was the level of talent throughout the entire cast, not simply the leads. Jeff Maxwell played Private Igor Straminsky in some eighty-three episodes and explains how he got the role. It's a long story as to how he actually got there, but I'll try and capsulize this. I was working as a casting director. Uh, for 20th Century Fox for a little bit. And um, I then made a lot of friends as casting with cast, other casting directors, and then I left. I retired because I wanted to go off and do something else, and I decided that I didn't want to go off and do something else after a while and uh, went back to my casting director friends and say, hey, gosh, you know, I'm a little depressed because that other thing didn't work out. And they said, well, there's this show called M.A.S.H., and it's going off the air. It's going to be canceled. And we can get you on it and just see maybe you like being an actor. And I said, no, nah, I don't really like actors. <laughs> so uh, anyway, they put me on it and the rest is history. Jeff Maxwell talked about the depth of talent in that cast. There was a lot of talent. I think also there was a lot of goodwill. Um, the people who were involved were there because they wanted to be there. They wanted to be involved. They loved the concept. They loved the writing. Uh, we all loved each other. Certainly there were problems after, you know, nine or 11 years, people disagree about things. But everybody really liked each other, which is kind of strange for a television show. And I think that really uh, spoke to the longevity of the show, as well as the, the acting and the participation by, from everybody, whether you had one word or you had a whole half hour monologue. That was what was going on. You wanted to be there. You loved the words and you loved the people. And I think that's that's what made it shine. Veteran character actor G.W. Bailey joined MASH in 1979 as Staff Sergeant Luther Rizzo, who ran the motor pool. Like others, he was taken with how welcoming the cast and crew were to newcomers. I was like a cousin that I would show up every now and then. They would love me and treat me well. And <laughs> And they and they liked me. They and I liked them. They they were sweet people. Sweet people. A native of Port Arthur, Texas, Bailey explained that the writers changed his character's background to reflect his southern roots. He was originally from Brooklyn, and uh, the first night that I worked, I came back in the next morning. I was called upstairs to the writers, producers, and I was you know I was frightened to death, and I was. I was worried, and I figured, well, they're going to fire me after one night. I went inside, and I said, guys, I understand there's no no bad blood, and I'm sorry that it happened, and I won't, uh, you know, I'll just go away. 
<laughs> being as, as sweet as I could. And they said, uh, what, what the hell are you talking about? Bert Metcalf and the producer's guys. And they said, what the hell are you talking about? I said, well, you, uh, obviously you're going to fire me. He said, fire you. We want, we want you, we want you as a regular, but we have to, we have to pass it through CBS and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I said, really? I said, that's amazing. I said, I said, no, no, no. We're going to, we're going to put you in our Bible. You're going to be from, um, you're going to be, you're going to be from, you're not going to be from Baltimore or, or New York or any of that. You're going to be from, I think we'll have you from the Cajun, in the Cajun country, <laughs> because you sound much more like a Cajun than you do a Yankee. A major cast change came in season seven when Larry Linville departed and David Ogden Stiers joined as Major Charles Emerson Winchester. Stiers had caught the eye of Burt Metcalf on an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Mark Freeman explains. So uh, what you typically have is... Uh, the casting director, and, and Bert wasn't that by this time, um, but his casting director head is who are actors I've seen in plays on other shows and so on that I want to bring in. And they knew they had, they were coming up with a replacement for Larry Linville. They didn't quite know what they were looking for, um, but they started to have, I think, what became somewhat of a silhouette of what Winchester became. And Bert, who said he would typically go out on Saturday nights, he wasn't feeling well, and he was home that night, and there was this Mary Tyler Moore episode, and, and in the episode, Lou and Mary are going for a raise, and he won't give it to them, and he, at one point, he and he's, he's like the stuttering, uncomfortable right. man. Right, right, I remember. And then he wrote this last little offer to them, which you don't see on screen, and he says, this is the final offer, and he more or less says, we love both of you. We respect both of you. We want you to stay part of the family. And if you don't accept this, we'll put you in the gutter. And then he walks out of the room. <laughs> and if you think about the uh, what that represents, that, that is Winchester in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, uh, so we saw him and, and uh, brought him in, and, and the rest is history. But it also shows you how casting can be so random at times and the good fortune of david who didn't even try to do anything he was just on another show when we come back mash memories from a singing captain miss yvonne of peewee's playhouse and St. Elsewhere's Dr. Victor Ehrlich. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And I wonder if they miss us. Now, wouldn't that be funny? Now that we're without them, we can hardly stand ourselves. Well, it's funny when they're here. How we take for granted The way they taste, the way they feel Their sight, their smell, their sound And it's funny when they're gone 
just how bad we miss them and how life can be so empty when they're not around and i wonder if they miss us now wouldn't that be funny now that we're without them we can hardly stand ourselves. Over its 11 seasons, MASH welcomed a number of talented guest actors. Lynn Marie Stewart had appeared in American Graffiti, came to fame as the most beautiful woman in puppet land, Miss Yvonne, on Pee Wee's Playhouse, and played several characters on MASH. I think I played eight <laughs> different nurses. The big one was when I got to play Radar's girlfriend. Yeah. That was amazing. <laughs> and and that was also one of the first uh, times I ever, uh, it was one of my first, well, I was like co-starring and that was a big deal for me because I was a big Nash fan. And they had me in for a really small part. And I was like, I don't even know. I mean, I, like I hadn't done anything and I was already like, oh, I don't know. They want to do this. I don't even have any lines. I'm just in a line with radar. And as it turned out, they were seeing us together, seeing our height, seeing how we interacted in the line together. And I'm so glad that I did that little part because then I got to play his girlfriend and I got to do like eight episodes playing different uh, nurses. And, and, but that, that, I don't know whether I want to do this part. It was very fleeting, like a second. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was a great, great experience for me. And people, you know, people come up to me and say, oh, my God, I saw you on a rerun of Bash. <laughs> and it's just like, it's just so much fun. Singer-songwriter Loudon Wainwright III played singing surgeon Captain Spaulding in three episodes during season three. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was, uh, you know, it was the biggest television show on on television and uh, it's, i'm sure it's playing somewhere right now in rerun ed begley jr who played dr victor ehrlich on saint elsewhere and has enjoyed a terrific career with roles in better call saul six feet under young sheldon and films like an officer and a gentleman and best in show has fond memories of his role in a season eight mash episode too many cooks it was a dream come true because I loved that show so much. And indeed, I knew a lot of the same guys, the creative side of it. I knew uh, uh, Larry Gelbart, who was the writer. I knew Gene Reynolds, the producer, and he directed a lot of them. He had put me in after two or three years of MASH. They came out with a show. It was just a pilot. Then it was got picked up. It was 13 episodes. It was a, kind of a black, black MASH show. It was about the Red Ball Express, a trucking company in World right. War II. Right. It was overseas. And so I was part of that show, and that lasted 13 weeks. Then sadly, didn't get picked up. But I was always drawn to the mass crowd, to Alan and, uh, you know, and to Mike Farrell and all that wonderful gang. And, uh, and to see them again on year eight of that show when I'd been next door to them doing that other Gene Reynolds, Larry Gelbart show was, was a real treat. Everyone has their own favorite episodes of MASH, and that includes the cast. High on Mike Farrell's list is season nine's Death Takes a Holiday, where BJ tries to make sure that a wounded soldier doesn't die on Christmas Day. It was extraordinary. And, you know, they gave me that, uh, that 
challenge. I directed it, and uh, I guess I wrote part of the script. And um, it, it, I think it's one of the one of the finest shows we did in terms of making the point that these people are connected. These people overseas. Um, risking their lives are, are, are connected to all of us. And it's not just their families, it's all of us. And when this idea came up that this guy might die on Christmas Day and BJ and the rest of the people couldn't, couldn't stand the idea that his family would never, would always then be, uh, be, have that hovering over their Christmas holiday that, that that's the day their loved one, father, husband, son died in the war. We thought, God, this is, this really has to be done to perfection. And, um, the gang really pulled it off. I think season eight's period of adjustment provided a painful and a poignant moment for Farrell's character. Oh man. <laughs> that was a funny one. I, I, there were two for me. Uh, there was that one, and there was uh, one. Radar goes home, and and, and uh, Peg lets me know that when they went down to meet him to get off the ship, yeah. <laughs> Aaron, our, my my baby daughter, ran up to him, called him daddy. Yeah. So that one was a heartbreaker, and then period of adjustment about the falling in love, or like, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, they're just, it's uh, the challenges that they presented us uh, were just fabulous. You couldn't, you couldn't wait to open the, the new script and see what, what, what they've, what they've wrought for us. A universally acclaimed episode came in season four with the interview as a war correspondent interviews the staff of the 4077. People ask me what's my favorite episode, and I, I always say the interview. Um, I mean, you know, how can you pick a favorite? But um, you, I, I trust you know the story. They, The writers wrote their brains out, and we would do 24 episodes, and we would they would write 24 scripts. And as Bert said recently, uh, you know, this one will never make it. <laughs> this is going to end up being awful. And then halfway through, he'd say, "Well, maybe it's got a chance." And then he got to the end, we got to the end of it, and he said, "God, we pushed, we pulled it off again." Um, but in this case, they had written their brains out and had come up with the, uh, all twenty-four. And then CBS called and they said they want a twenty-fifth episode. <laughs> right. And they said, "Oh my God, how do we do this?" And they looked and looked and looked and thought about it. And then they thought of the the Edward R. Murrow, "You Are There." Mm. And um, Gene, I remember Gene coming up to each one of us with um, a, a little uh, pad of paper and a recorder saying, I want you to um, extemporize. I want you to, to, to uh, ad lib a, uh, your answer in character to the questions on this list. And then we're going to have a... a a reporter, it turned out to be Cleve Roberts, who was quite famous here right. in L.A., um, come in and do a kind of Edward R. Murrow-esque visit to the MASH during the war and uh, and interview each of us. And he did. And we wrote the scripts, our own scripts, for the to answer the questions he posed. And then, of course, they threw into his script 
a couple of questions that weren't written mm. that we didn't know were coming, <laughs> and we had to again, at, you know, at, at the at the moment as the cameras cameras are running, hear this new question and respond to it in in character, and and I thought afterward, what what wonderful people these are, just what you know that they they had such faith in us, right, and such such willingness to to push out to push the edges. Uh, all the time. And it was, God, it was just, it was just thrilling. Journalist Mark Freeman also says season seven's preventative medicine was an important one. In the original script, BJ and Hawkeye conspire to remove a healthy appendix from a Lieutenant Colonel Lacey, a company commander with a high rate of casualties among his men. When I was first interviewing everybody, they talked about this Bible. They got their episodes, the writers from this Bible, which was a collection of interviews that and and continued to the end of the show that Gene, eventually Bert, uh, Larry, they would do with veterans mm. of the Korean War and the Vietnam War, and and uh, people knew not didn't remember it. They didn't know where to find it, and I actually ended up finding some of them, uh, maybe like a hundred pages worth, and they had said that they would mine through this for anything to inspire an idea, and within the pages of that, this guy tells that story, that there was a, a, a general uh, sending people out um, to die consistently, and that he took out the guy's appendix and didn't regret it at all. And that became the basis for that episode. And the argument that um, DJ, well, Mike had was, he said, no matter how he felt about the guy and what the guy was doing, BJ would never cross that line uh, to do that and, and remove that. And, and Alan Aldo was like, well, Hawkeye would. He'd have no problem with it. Mm. So they rewrote the script. And I actually have a version uh, that Jeff Maxwell showed me of the original script with the final one. And you can see how they, they change it from little humorous banter as they remove the guy's appendix <laughs> to to more of a silent, um, reflective, uh, uncomfortable thing where BJ isn't even there. He wouldn't even be in the operating room uh, with him. When we come back, more memorable episodes and a finale for the ages. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. There we are in this chateau. So Stein finds a cache of fine brandy, and we sat up all night. The shells were screaming, and we were singing and toasting our friendship. Then we got down to the last bottle. This uh, very bottle here. Any of you know what a tontine is? Yes. Uh, Tontine is a pledge. Give that man a cheroot. The five of us made a pledge. We'd save this bottle. Let some legal eagle stow it for us. And whoever turned out to be the last survivor of the group, well, he'd get the bottle and drink a toast to his old buddies. For good or bad, you're looking at the last survivor. 
I got the job when Grusky passed on in Tokyo. He had the bottle sent here, God rest his soul. Thank God I was wrong. Colonel, we thought you were sick. I was sick. Just thinking how all my friends are gone now. Felt a little sorry for myself, too, getting up in years. But I'm looking at things a bit different now. I've been a very lucky man. I've had some wondrous, joyous times. That's what counts. We were so alive back then. It was something. But as much as my old friends meant to me, I think you new friends mean even more. So I'd like you to share this bottle with me. We'd be honored, Colonel. around, would you, Pierce? As I recall, it was mighty smooth in 17. Well, it should be magnificent now. Just one thing. I'd like to make the first toast solo to my old buddies. Here's to you, boys. To Ryan, who died in WW1, the war to end all wars. To Gianelli, who died in the war after that. To Stein, the joker of the crowd. And to Grusky, my best friend, who just passed away in Tokyo. You were the friends of my youth. My comrades through thick and thin. And everything in between. I drink to your memories. I loved you, fellas. One and all. Still mighty smooth. Okay, that's the old. Now for the new. To love and friendship. When Harry mm. was making those speech, that speech, you you con- you now remove yourself and contemplate how many people in the industry, greatness that he worked with. You know, uh, when you contemplate some of the films that he did, great, great black and white classics. Oh, yeah. And those incredible people, I mean, you know, Spencer Tracy, Frederick March, uh, you know, I mean, I can go on. Um, He was in what, um, uh, the... uh, The Oxbow uh, Incident? The Oxbow Incident, yeah. Uh, Judgment at New York. You know, you go on and on and... When he was making that speech, he had already lost uh, quite a few of his comrades. And and his whole heart and soul uh, was bare in that, in that speech, toasting his old comrades. And, of course, Harry, when, uh, when we wrapped and he was talking to the press, with all he had done, you know, I think eight or nine television series, he said it wasn't that it wasn't fun or nice, but you could walk away. He said, but this has been a different experience. I love these people. We're family, and, you know, and that poured into what he felt about us as well, that he invited his new, his new family, his new comrades to enjoy hosting 
his old and lost comrades. And it, it had such great meaning for all of us. But for Harry, he was talking about, you know, his, One of the most talked about episodes of MASH was season eight's Dreams, written and directed by Alan Alda. It's among those episodes that we told in a different storytelling way, an unusual way. It's like like the story where we told the story through the eyes of one of the wounded. Yes. The camera was the patient. Letters home was a different form. Uh, a lot of different attempts at telling stories in an unusual way, and, and Dreams was one of them, and I, I like to explore that. And uh, Gene Reynolds, who was producing the show, when I suggested it to him, said, oh, don't, don't write that story. That, that, that's a regular sitcom story where people dream um, their imaginary best interests of the the employee gets even with the boss during the dream or something like that. <laughs> right, right. And I said, that's sort of the opposite of what I want to do. I want to show how the war has affected them through looking at their dreams. And it, ga- it gave us a chance to show a side of the experience that you, you don't ordinarily see. I mean, ob- one obvious side of the experience is patching them up in the surgery, but how does it affect them when they're eating? How does it affect them when they're lonely, when they're writing letters home? How does it affect them when they're even asleep? What I like and what I'm grateful for to the people who didn't like the show is that we sort of had an unspoken deal with the audience, or at least I felt we did, that we could experiment a little and they would trust us to come back the following week with something that was more like we had done before and we could carry on the tradition they were accustomed to, even if they were uncomfortable with what we showed them this week. Jamie Farce's challenging episodes like Dreams worked because of the talents of the cast. Very, very, very interesting writing in it. And and again, the, all those actors, every single one of them, the, the, the original cast and the ones that replaced them were all great in their own way and and they could do anything Richard you give them something silly to do they could do it you give them something dramatic they could do it they were just all around wonderful wonderful actors and actresses one of Farr's favorites is Big Mac from season three when General Douglas MacArthur is supposed to visit the 4077 the uh, General MacArthur one got the <laughs> biggest laugh that uh, that punchline that they had or the punch joke that they had with me showing up as uh, a Statue of Liberty <laughs> yeah. at the end with that. Douglas MacArthur doesn't even pay any attention to the gang at right. all. But you see him going past them in the Jeep and he sees something and he salutes and then you <laughs> had the cut of me with a, with a flaming torch. That was the other thing. Well, I, I had gone into Beverly Hills the day after that had, uh, had shown and people were honking their horns at me, waving at me. Bus drivers were honking at my horn, that, at me with their horn. And I said, I couldn't believe that. That's how funny that sounds. Some people told me they actually fell off their sofas watching that. As for Private Igor, Jeff Maxwell has great memories of Adam's Ribs, a season three episode that featured an inspired bit of physical comedy from Hawkeye. In that episode, I, you know, I was behind the food tray and Alan Alda comes in and says, well, what do we have? What's the entree? So I say the entree for today is liver or fish. And then he goes crazy, <laughs> you know, and says, I've eaten enough fish to grow gills, you know, and he goes kind of nuts that he's got this same entree. And so he starts saying, we want something else. And he starts dancing and he, he leapt up, leaped up on, on one of the 
the tables in the mess tent and started doing this little jig thing um, and, you know, throwing his arms around on the tray and shouting, we want something else and dancing back and forth. And finally, the whole camp starts pounding their, you know, this thing. We want something else. But when I'm standing there, I'm watching Alan do this. <laughs> and I thought, how? What? Nobody expected him to leap up on the table and start doing that dance. And he did. And I asked him, how, you know, you didn't rehearse. He said, no, no, I was just, it just happened. You know, it just, I just thought I should jump up on the table. So that was so much fun to watch. And then to see the whole camp explode and do all that stuff that they did and, me and Roy, who was standing next to me, were banging our, our trays. For me, that was just a fun experience and a fun day. So, yeah, Adam's Ribs, I would say, was the, the funnest time I had. Well, one of them. I mean, all of them were delightful and wonderful, but that was one of the, the funnest. Despite strong ratings and a multitude of awards and nominations, the decision was made to end the series after season 11. Mark Freeman. That's the typical thing you get with... Uh, long-running shows. When when is when is enough? And is it when we're on the downward spiral? Is it when we're still at the peak? Is it somewhere in between? And fans usually are upset when when they're still at the peak, and and they're also upset that it's going off the air. But if it's not as good, they'll they'll say as much. Well, it was really good those first five years, kind of thing. Mash. They were and. So that's a long time in your life to do something like that. Uh, and for a lot of that show, Alan, because he was such a great dad and husband, and still is for that matter, he would fly home on the weekends. Right. Uh, he'd be out of there Friday, and he'd be back Monday morning. So there was, a, there was a lot of stuff going on and a lot of pressures involved. And so really, why not control the end of your story? It is your story, and so they could make that effort to go out on the terms they want, and they wouldn't have to try to squeeze out stories that maybe weren't even true by that point because they had used up all the veteran stories, more or less, they had. So when is enough in that sense is can we keep this train running uh, when we don't have as much track as we used to have? And why not end it? The finale of MASH, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, was written by eight collaborators, including Alan Alda, who also directed. It was very difficult to shoot. Well, the, the last shot we did was not from a, the, the final episode that was aired because I needed a lot of time to edit that show. It was a two-hour movie. Yeah. That went with commercials ran two and a half hours. So it gives you an idea of how many commercials we had to watch to get some entertainment uh, in those days. I think it's even worse now. Yeah. The, uh, the At the final shot, which was uh, the next to last show that was aired, there were about 300 people on the set from the press. And it was really hard to concentrate on the scene because in a way the cameras, the audience, and the press was the equivalent of the audience standing in the wings watching you while you're trying to perform for the where the audience is supposed to be. And it was very distracting, but we, st we were beginning to get a sense of the impact that the show had on the country. And when the final episode was played, we were driving to a restaurant together to celebrate, and the streets were empty. And it suddenly occurred to us that half the country was home watching at the same time. And I guess you know that while it was playing in New York City, when the first commercial came, everybody went to the bathroom at the same time. And the waterworks in New York almost got ruined. <laughs> 
The extended final episode drew an audience of more than 120 million, still the biggest audience for a scripted show in the history of television. A number of characters' stories were resolved, including G.W. Bailey's Sergeant Rizzo, who had a unique post-war plan. Right, he was at a self-frogs at a French restaurant because he had to make some money for Billy Bubba and for uh, his wife and, and for his son, Billy Bubba, and some. Uh, and he, he, had, he had to do something, so he decided on frogs from, for French restaurants. The last mash also included a poignant moment for Majors Houlihan at Winchester and actors Loretta Swit and David Ogden Stiers. Margaret borrowed it from his hand, and she thought... It was a gift that he should give her, very Margaret. <laughs> and he said, well, no, it's mine, and I want it back. And uh, there, there are, like, earlier scenes that are run along this line. And during uh, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, he came to collect. Now, prior to this time, you have to know that I always had a running gag with Dave, and I teased him all the time about nobody knew where he lived, where to find him. We had to call his agent if we want to invite him to a party, you know. And I said, you're not going to get away with that, with this gang. We're close. We love you. You love us. You know, you can't give me your phone number, at least, you know. And, and I said, all right, David, what if I wanted to invite you to a party? And he said, I probably wouldn't want to come, you know, very Winchester. You know? <laughs> so, I, I probably wouldn't have any desire to attend such a party. Anyway, so this, this went on a long time. And uh, when Winchester, in saying goodbye, gives her the, the poetry, the, the book of poems, he handed the book to me on camera. It was my close-up. And Margaret opens the book because David, because Winchester has uh, signed it. And David signed it to Loretta, uh, which I saw on camera, which is why I, I nearly uh, avalanched with tears. Um, and it had his phone number. He, he wrote his phone number. And I just, you know, and then unrehearsed when I pull away with the Jeep, he looked at me and he put his hand over his heart. And that spoke volumes. Mike Farrell tells us the cast and crew gathered together to watch the finale. We got together um, at uh, at the Fox. Fox set up a, this big screening theater they have. Um, the day before, I guess, it aired. And um, we all came and brought our respective spice <laughs> husband, friends, wives, whatever, and the whole crew. It wasn't just the actors. It was the whole bunch. And, uh, and we watched it and wept and laughed and wept again. And, uh, cause it was, a, that was a, boy, that was a, that was a tough one. I remember Bert saying, as we were shooting a scene, Bert directed the last one. And he said, Okay, wait, 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 wait. He said, God, he said, I've never been in a situation where I've had to ask actors to stop 
crying. When we return to our salute to MASH, a cast that became a family. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Okay, Major, pile That's what, a hood ornament? I'm sorry, Major. The rest of this stuff can go on the truck. I'll catch up with it. No, Margaret, Margaret, you stay with your belongings. If you leave them to the Army, you'll never see them again. You go ahead, go in the Jeep. I'm sure Sergeant Rizzo will find me another mode. Well, I'll go take a look, but we ain't got too many modes left, Major. Actually, uh, Margaret, I'm taking uh, too many things myself. I wonder if you would tuck one more item in with you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Margaret. Fifty years since MASH premiered, the show remains popular and adds new fans each year. And after 50 years, those involved in the making of the show remain close. I just think it's, it was the chemistry that we had. Not only did we uh, enjoy the characters that we played, we all had the same work ethic. Uh, when they would set up the setting up the cameras and the lights, we'd go off into a little area and run the lines, run them back and forth, back and forth. You know, a lot of times when the actors, uh, we'd be on a set and they were setting up stuff, they'd be on the uh, on the telephone talking to the press agent, where's their next job or they have any game shows or whatever the heck. We didn't do that. We had a little room uh, that was set aside with our chairs in it, and we ran the lines, ran the lines, ran the line back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth, till we got the rhythm of of the scene. And then again, we also liked each other. Uh, there wasn't a day that you didn't you you wanted to get up every morning to go to work, and you couldn't wait to get back to work when uh, the the next day. That's how how wonderful the atmosphere was. It's a kind of cliche in the business to say, "Oh yes, we formed a family when we were there," but we did. Um, um, we loved each other and still do. We've um, been to too many services and talked about people who are with us no longer. We've honored their memories, but we we do it as a unit, and and it's because it, we still feel a part of that unit, and it's. Um, it's something that'll never leave me, I know. And, and I, it's fairly, it's clear to me that it's the same with everybody else. Mike uh, very often calls me sis, his little sis <laughs> I call him bro. Uh, we're, we're close, good friends. He is, he is like my brother, which is very interesting. Wayne, in the same position on the scoreboard, also behaved like my big brother. <laughs> he also took care of me in that way. And Max used to call me Ma. Now, I took care of Max. He said he thought I was one of the most maternal women he'd ever met in his life. But uh, I, did, I did have those feelings about our cast. Uh, maybe because I was the only female, but uh, <clears throat> if we were family, I probably was mother to some. And I was sister to Mike, you know. Uh, Jamie certainly is one of my brothers. You know, we all kind of hung out together. You're in the same room. 
Um, you know, there was no caste system. You know, nobody was kind of better than the other one. Uh, we all kind of slid in and out of each other's <laughs> sphere of influence and lives. Um, I know I, uh, the one dear friend who passed away, it was very sad. Kelly Nakahara, mm. uh, was great. She was a lovely person and a dear friend. And so is the guy that I, I was in the Adams rib shot with, uh, who was banging the lids with me was named Roy Goldman. And he also passed away. He was in a number of episodes, always one of the orderlies and things, but Roy had, a, had, the, he was one of the funniest people on the set. And he just kept everybody in stitches. He, if he wanted to, he could just make you laugh at an, any given moment. The cast also keeps the memory of those who are gone very close to their hearts. Loretta Swit. I remember Burt Metcalf was directing me, and he was looking to heaven and saying, please, people, stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it was so magical and, and wonderful and, and bittersweet, very painful. I mean, when I looked at that's, yes, it's acting because you are using yourself totally, and it's a method kind of actor that that does that. But to look at Harry and have to say, you dear sweet man, I'll never forget you. I mean, that was in my heart everlastingly before I had to shoot it, before I, you know, when I met him, the, he was a guest star. I fell in love with him then. But I'd always loved his work in film and TV and so forth. But here was this prince of a guy. I mean, he was just, he was everything to everybody. He was, he was my confessor, my father, uh, my lunch date, my family. He was just, and, and, and the best colleague. You know, he, he, he was a serious actor and took himself so seriously, uh, but never so seriously that he didn't make light of a situation, he didn't gag, he didn't pun, he didn't, he was, he was everything. He was everything. And he would, he would just destroy us, make us laugh so hard. Um, and um, there was just, there was just nobody like Harry. McLean made us fall down from laughter. He was constantly improvising monologues that were absurd and ribald and very funny. And when Harry came in to play the equivalent part, Harry had his falling down too, but not with things he said. It was really his attitude about things and a twinkle in his eye, and we would collapse. <laughs> he, was, he was adorable. G.W. Bailey tells a wonderful story about running into Larry Gelbart several years after the series ended. I was coming out of the hotel Sheridan Universal one, one day years ago, and... And he stopped me as I was going into the hotel, and he said, G.W., G.W., and I said, oh, Mr. Gelbart, how are you, sir? And he said, no, no, it's, uh, he said, it's such, a, such an honor to meet you. I said, what? <laughs> such an honor to meet you. And he said, oh, you're a member of our family. I said, Mr. Gelbart, I only did four years, five years, four years maybe, and and the show, you know, and I said, it was an honor to be with you. He says, oh, no, Mr. Bailey. He says, it's an honor to be with you, sir. And to have Larry Gelbart say that to me was, I'm telling you, I cried like a baby after he left. I, I broke down and cried. Larry Gelbart spoke that way to me, called me a member of his family. Uh, you, you don't get any better than that. Loretta Swit remembers Father Mulcahy, actor William Christopher. I used to kid Bill. 
I said, you know, I do honestly believe that you have been the cause of bringing people back to the church more than any living <laughs> clergy. I mean, I, I said, people adore you. And he was such, he, I love the way he played the priest. He was so human. He just, you know, his humanity, his fairness, his, his yeah, his, his humanity, really. He was such a human priest. And um, I was brought up Catholic. I didn't get to meet many priests like Bill Christopher. They didn't, they, they weren't human. They were, most of them, holier than thou, you know. And it was... Um, and of course, I was a kid, so they automatically are up there, and you're looking up to them and so forth. But Bill met you square on. You, you could tell him anything. And that's the kind of priest I think uh, the priest should be that. They should be mm. our connection to a higher power, if you will. And that was Bill. And funny, oh, my God, that dry sense of humor. <laughs> We had a contest. You'll remember this because it was hilarious. It was an episode in which Hawkeye comes up with this great idea to see how many people could fit into one Jeep. And uh, we're piling into the Jeep, and he's going to take a picture and send it to, you know, Time Magazine or whatever crazy idea Hawkeye had. And Bill wound up on the bottom, <laughs> and, and everybody's going, Hey, Bill, are you okay down there, Bill? And he said, fortunately, I remember to bring something to read. <laughs> well, I, you know, we were, he was always so deliciously funny and, and unpredictable and dear. And uh, he was one of a kind. Mike Farrell shared memories of David Ogden Stiers. David was a wonderful man, and uh, he and I were very close. Um, he came to the show late, uh, as uh, people who watch MASH know when uh, old ferret face uh, Larry Linville, Frank Burns' <laughs> character, uh, uh, left the show. They decided, uh, the producers, uh, to their credit, decided they wanted to bring in somebody who was a uh, not just a buffoon like the Frank Burns' character turned out to be, but not only was he a smart and thoughtful and well-trained, uh, but a very good surgeon, um, unlike the Frank Burns character, and be a match for Hawkeye and BJ. And uh, they they selected David, uh, who had done a lot of work uh, in the in the in the business, and he was just delicious. He was just a wonderful guy who played this role to the T's, and he. Um, he became quickly became a, a close friend of all of us, a member of the family. Um, and David, I think, was the one member of the cast who was um, a li once the show was over, was kind of reluctant to uh, trade, if you will, on being um, uh, Major Winchester, um, or wanted didn't want to be stuck in that mold because that was a very a character that was very um, apart from. Mm his personal personality. Um, but he was just, a, he was, a, I think, the best trained and certainly one of the finest actors I've ever worked with and, and a, uh, a really extraordinary man. Finally, why are we still talking about this show that ended its original run 39 years ago? Mike Farrell tells us the late Gene Reynolds may have said it best. I think Gene Reynolds came up with 
what I consider to be the best answer to that question, and that is that it was the perfect existential situation. He said, everybody doesn't go to war. Every man doesn't put on a uniform. Um, everybody doesn't um, suffer the same set of circumstances, but everybody understands having to be separated from the ones they love and having to do so for a reason that is a good reason, but a painful one. And he, 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 he probably put it better than I did, but just now, but, um, but I think he was exactly right. People, you just said it. I get letters every day from people who talked about what MASH meant to them and how important it was to their lives. And it's, it's a, it's a, I have to say it's a little bit of a, um, I don't, I'm struggling to find the word. It's not a, it's not a burden, but it's a big responsibility mm. to be part of something that has had that kind of chemi chemical, emotional reaction in the lives of so many people. I think I did tell you this story. I was, uh, when I was doing the show, I was asked to come to Wisconsin, I think it was, uh, to do a telethon to raise some money for a charity. And I did. And then there was a, we were doing the thing during the day and then there was a break and the guy said, uh, you can go sit down or have a cup of, uh, uh, have a drink of water or whatever you want. And I said, I think I'll just go out and take a walk around a little bit. I can, I've got 15 or 20 minutes. And he said, sure. So I went down the street, just walked in, uh, I think it was uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I'm just looking, you know, around and beautiful day and, um, a guy's coming toward me and as he gets close, I see that he recognizes me and he stopped and he said, Hey, and I said, yeah. And he stuck his hand out. He says, how the hell are you? And I said, I grabbed his hand and shook it. I said, I'm fine. How the hell are you? And then he suddenly, I saw his eyes open wide and he leaped back and he said, oh my God, I just realized I don't know you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I said, that's, that's quite all right. You've just charmed the hell out of me and thank you. <laughs> and he said, he said, how does it feel? And I said, what do you mean? He said, how does it feel to have half a relationship formed with millions and millions of people. And that's a question, uh, you know, uh, how do you answer that question? Millions and millions of people continue to love and appreciate the work done by the incredible group of actors, writers, directors, and crew who made MASH one of the greatest shows in television history, and one that we've had a wonderful time honoring in this special show. Many thanks to Mike Farrell, Loretta Swit, Jamie Farr, G.W. Bailey, Jeff Maxwell, Lynn Marie Stewart, Ed Begley Jr., Loudon Wainwright III, Mark Freeman, and of course, Jeff and Ryan from MASH Matters for kindly sharing portions of their conversation with Alan Alda. And of course, thanks to our producer, Kerry Haskell, for putting it all together. For Downtown, I'm Rich Kimball.
We'll see you next week on Downtown the Podcast. Downtown the Podcast.